Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called Unicorns Are Real and is the first teaching in our Re-Enchanted series. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on July 24th, 2022. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So uh, earlier this week, I was on vacation with my family in St. Augustine and uh, humble brag there. Uh, and I was sitting on the beach with my daughter, who's five years old, by the way. And in an effort to actually try to get her to go out into the ocean with me, you know, the whole reason that we drove eight and a half hours to this place, uh, I told her, maybe if we go out far enough, we'll see a mermaid. <laughs> and she turned to me and gave me this look that is becoming more and more frequent. She furred her brow and rolled her eyes and smirked at me and said, Dad, I know mermaids aren't real. (laughs) Now, just so you know, I don't really believe in mermaids either, okay? But I am really curious about how we humans, specifically my human children, know things. So I asked, how do you know mermaids don't exist? She said, because I just know, and I've never seen one. Okay, so now I have her backed into a corner, and I tell her, But you believe in unicorns, and you've never seen one of those. Please don't judge me. (laughs) I know that there's probably a better way to have this conversation, but I'm just having too much fun. So then she hits me with it. The argument ender. The perfectly logical response. She says, I believe in unicorns because they're real. (laughs) So, how do you recover from that kind of response? One of the reasons that I'm obsessed with conversations like this, funny and comical as they may be, is because I, I think whether we're religious or Christian or agnostic or Democrat or Republican or some weird uncertain mixture of some of those things, I think we all do the same kinds of mental and spiritual gymnastics about what we do and don't believe in. Unicorns are real because they just are. And mermaids aren't because they just aren't. Ultimately, your belief in unicorns or mermaids, or God for that matter, in large part is determined by whether or not you view the universe, our world, and your life as enchanted. My guess is that not many of us in this room are at least willing to admit that we entertain the possibility of meeting a unicorn or a mermaid. But I am curious about how many of us still hold out the belief, the possibility 
of catching a glimpse of God, even out of the corner of our eyes. So beginning this week and for the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be entering into this series that we're calling Reenchanted. This wonderful image that Brad introduced us to. And I, if I had to tell you the story of how exactly this series came about, I'd have to tell you a bunch of stories. And, and as excited as I am about this series and as constructive and cool as I think this series is going to be, I have to warn you that most of today is not going to be a lot of fun. Because in order to talk about re-enchanting our world, we have to come to grips with the fact that for many of us, maybe most of us, the world is mostly disenchanted. So I have to tell you the story about how Molly, our lead pastor, handed me this one book called Hunting for Magic Eels by Richard Beck. And I'm not sure how Molly found this book or if it even matters how she found this book, but she handed me this book randomly like six months ago and said, I think you should read this. And this book came at a perfect time for me personally, and I think for us as a faith community. In this book, Richard Beck, who is a psychologist and Christian professor at Abilene University, he talks about this time 500 years ago when the world was enchanted. Maybe there were unicorns, maybe there weren't. Again, I've never seen one, but maybe back then. But he talks about this time where people in the world believed in magic. It was in this time almost impossible to conceive of a world in which God did not exist. There were spiritual forces everywhere, both good and bad, and there were places that had enchanted magic. But then, he describes, came about other explanations. Newtonian physics solved some of the mysteries in the universe that people had once credited to a God that they did not see. Machines and technologies turned miracles and hard work into routine, effortless production. This little revolt within Christianity produced a group of people called Protestants who decided that the goal of faith was to become good, moral citizens rather than ritualized, mystified souls. And Beck argues in this book that it's, it's not actually hard to see how we get to the point where we are today, where we wonder if there's a God or not anymore. Because if science can demystify some of our theology, if Christianity is about morality rather than mystery, we're doomed. Because I know a large sampling of people who are very good, very moral people, who are not Christians. And I know plenty of professing Christians who are not very moral or very good. This realization of where we are at with what we believe can cause anxiety, can cause skepticism, depression, hopelessness, angst, rage, and boredom with the idea of a Christian journey 
at least for those of us who grew up being told that we couldn't be good, that we couldn't realize our purpose without this faith in God. And anyone who feels this or has experienced this has in some part experienced, whether they know it or not, a disenchantment with the world. Either because we have chosen to replace our Christianity with something else, or because we've changed the goal of our faith altogether without even knowing it. We just can't see God in the things that we used to see God in. We can't feel God in the experiences that we used to feel God in, if God was even there in the first place. So we can't stop here. This isn't the only story of how this series came about. I have to tell you the story of, of when I listened to the audiobook of, by Brian McLaren called Do I Stay Christian? And I would need to tell you that I bought this book not because I simply had to check out the latest title from one of my favorite authors, but because I am desperately still trying to answer the question in that title. In the book, McLaren gives us about as many arguments for why someone could legitimately answer the question, do I stay Christian, with a resounding no. And he gives as many reasons for answering that question with a defiant yes. At one point in the book, McLaren suggests that there are four stages to a faith journey. You know, everybody comes out with these things. We're not proposing this as it's like the final answer or anything, but, but McLaren has an interesting take on this that I want to share with you. He says that for many of us, the first stage of faith is this stage of simplicity. And in the stage of simplicity, as you might guess, we honestly believe in the enchantment of faith. We believe in the reality of God, and we tend to believe in the exclusivity of this particular truth that we've found in the tradition that we become aware of God. In this simplistic perspective of faith, there's this belief that it's this tradition, this group, my people. You're either for us or you're against us. It's black or it's white. It's all or nothing. It's us or it's them. And in some very basic sense, that's necessary for us to go through that phase. So we have to kind of come to that understanding of self-definition, but but really, that's just the first stage of faith. McLaren writes that eventually, hopefully, we move on to this sort of complexity view of how our faith works. We begin to see the world's problems from other vantage points. We encounter people with different answers to the questions that we're asking. Some say it's this religion. Some say it's this political party. Some say it's this economic structure. Some say it's this form of science. There's more than one way to slice the pie, but we're still glad that we have our slice. But maybe at some point, after taking in enough of the complexity of the world, we can move to the third stage of faith, which is utter perplexity, maybe confusion. We become disenchanted with the world. We begin to think to ourselves, Maybe I should just try to focus on the politics and just change the policies the way that I think the world should be run because I just, I'm not necessarily seeing much happening here in this faith thing. Maybe 
Maybe we ought to invest more money in the capital system so that we can have a bigger investment and more resources to help do good in the world. Or maybe the complete opposite, we should subvert and overthrow the capitalistic system because that's the problem. Or, or maybe the Buddhists or the Jews are onto something because they seem to be doing a better job of being human than these Christians that I'm a part of. Or maybe, who knows if this even really matters at all, who really knows who's right or wrong? If you've not been in this phase, it sounds quite scary, and trust me, it is. But McLaren finally suggests that there's a possibility of emerging out of this phase, slowly, maybe without even knowing it, to this stage that is based on harmony. The stage of harmony, this concluding stage, is less concerned with who is ultimately right or wrong than it is about synthesizing what we hold in common with our brothers and sisters in the human race. It's about witnessing and participating in the kingdom of God rather than arguing about how it exists or if it exists. It's about wisdom and making contributions to the world. It's about the realization that many things are beyond our understanding and that there is no them to oppose. It's more about mystery and questions than it is about morality and answers. And I've got to be honest with you, I've probably spent most of the last seven years in utter perplexity as to what is going on in Christianity in America. I've seen Christians bicker online and excommunicate people on the basis of their belief in this thing called hell as an eternal punishment after life for non-believers, a group by which grows by the day. I've seen Christians simultaneously say Jesus is Lord and in the same breath say, let's go, Brandon. I've seen followers of Jesus on the other side believe that voting down ballot Democrat is the answer to fixing all of our problems. I've seen Catholics and Baptists protect sexual abusers and megalomaniac narcissists because they believe their communities couldn't survive the truth or the justice needed to protect the innocent people who showed up to their communities looking for God. I've seen countless friends and acquaintances leave ministry jobs or the church altogether because they believed in evolution, rights for LGBTQ people, calling out racism, trying to make sense of God in ways that weren't approved. Forget the last seven years. I've read historical accounts of Christians framing and murdering entire Jewish communities out of their own religious insecurity and lust for money. How the elements of common meal, the body and blood of Jesus, the Eucharist, was used as a plot piece to declare blood libel against Jewish neighbors in order for Christians to steal their wealth. There's the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, colonialism, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, enough for me to thoroughly be perplexed as to whether or not this Christian way has any validity or any enchantment in the world. And when I tell you that I am eager for this series... <laughs> I tell you as someone who is personally trying to find some enchantment 
in the way of Jesus again. Some way of recovering the belief that one day I might see that unicorn of someone living in the kingdom of God. And I know for some of you I'm not alone. Whether you're a Christian or agnostic or just trying to figure it out today, I think we're all trying to make sense of a pretty disenchanted world. And I think that despite our disappointment and anger at the world that is no longer populated with some of the enchanted things we once thought might be there, we are all hungering for a vision of reality that stands amazed once more in a willful re-enchantment of life. The British novelist Julian Barnes once said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Barnes perfectly describes this disenchantment we are talking about. This journey through perplexity. Through all the reasons we might as well give up on this whole Jesus project and all the reasons that it won't let go of us. Because even if we don't believe in God anymore, like Barnes, or we just don't believe in the same version of God that we once believed in, sometimes we still miss the enchantment that God used to bring to the world. But what's even more fascinating to me about Julian Barnes is that despite being a skeptic and agnostic and secular humanist, Many of the stories that he writes, the novels that he creates, are obsessed with the question, what if it were true? What if it were real? What if there was a kingdom of God? What would it look like? Barnes is haunted by a God he doesn't believe in, but must try to imagine. He writes stories that are speaking into this longing for all of us. Because whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, we are living in a time when faith in anything is not a given. There is the possibility for a person to contest belief in God in a way that was previously unimaginable. In fact, I think it's becoming increasingly more likely that people find believing in God more incredible, more of an impossibility than they do the idea that there might not be a God. And yet there is this desire. There's this longing, this anxiousness in us that's surrounded by this God who may or may not exist. This is what Richard Beck calls the ache. This feeling of being skeptical with our skepticism, of doubting our doubt. And if anything I've said has connected with you, I want to tell you that this is the turn. This is where I have good news. Because I believe that in these times that we are living through, in this present disenchanted world, the doubter's doubt is faith. And I wonder if in this doubt, it is in this humble skepticism, that we find the possible conditions for re-enchanting the world. If I were really going to tell you the story about how we decided to do this series, though, I would have to tell you about this 
story from the Hebrew Scriptures about a disenchanted young man named Jacob. In the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the story goes that the world was originally created with an enchantment. That God created this world to be very good. But that the trajectory of the world as it was currently being existed was on a downward slope. The world was becoming a disenchanted place. And so in the midst of this disenchantment, God made a promise to a man named Abraham and promised him that if this man, Abraham, would leave the comfort of his home, the comfort of Babylon, this place called Ur, God would make him into a family, a community that would bless the world. Abraham agrees to follow this God. But Abraham notes the disenchantment of the world and of his own family because he and his wife, Sarah, could not conceive a child. So how was it going to be possible for this new enchantment of the world to come about through two people so out of touch with the enchantment of having a child? And yet God offered Abraham and Sarah, the possibility of this re-enchanted world, and Abraham believed it. The character from our story today, though, is Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson. And though throughout the story, it seems as though Jacob knows something about this God, the relationship that this God had with his grandfather and his father, the Bible contains no mention of Jacob's relationship with this God until the book of Genesis in chapter 28. So Jacob has been born into this family and grown up, but apparently never had any kind of personal encounter with this mysterious God, Yahweh. Jacob, we are led to believe, isn't the kind of person to wait around for some invisible God of promises to show up. Jacob is a taker. His name literally means the grasper. And from birth, Jacob was hungry for status and approval and security. Jacob was born with the ache and was trying to fix it in all the wrong ways. Jacob was more interested in getting his inheritance than some mystical promise of blessing and restoring the world. And this obsession, this interest included betraying his own brother and stealing his inheritance through deceit. And this is where the story picks up today. In order to escape his brother, who is angry enough to kill him, and possibly find a new life, a future, a wife, Jacob runs away from home and heads back where his grandfather Abraham came from, this place called Haran. This is where the story picks up in chapter 28 of Genesis, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and sent out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking out one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now, it's important to know a lot of things that are going on here in this passage. First of all, traveling at night is always dangerous. But especially so, it was believed in the ancient world, not just because bandits or thieves might come and steal from you, 
but because it was believed that at nighttime the divine beings came out, both the good ones and the bad ones. And this belief populated the world that Jacob lived in. Remember, these were enchanted times, even if Jacob was a disenchanted person. So this note about Jacob getting a rock for a pillow, as weird as that may seem to us, actually probably represents some kind of belief in this rock as a supernatural protection device against other beings that might come to him in the night. Even though Jacob had no dealings with the God of Abraham personally, he still took precautions in an enchanted world. And as we see next, he was right to do so. The story continues. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So this notice about the staircase, some, some translations say a ladder, what they're probably imagining in this story is a ziggurat, this structure, this holy space in Babylon that looks like a staircase up to heaven. And it was believed in this enchanted world that these ziggurats, these sacred places, were the points of contact between the realm of the enchanted gods and the disenchanted world of humans. It was at these spots where the gods might go up and go down. It was here that you might meet an enchanted being. And so this is what's happening in Jacob's dream. Jacob is realizing that here might be a place where God is. There stood above it the Lord, Yahweh, and he said, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In this dream, on the road away from home, Jacob meets this mysterious God of his grandfather. And this God, in this meeting of the enchanted and the disenchanted realms, repeats the promises that have been offered to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. God, in this dream event, speaks the words over a disenchanted Jacob, I am with you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't aware of it. He was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. All Jacob's life, he has been grasping for the answers, trying to claim his inheritance under his own power, using his own ways. And there's no evidence 
that he's looking for Abraham's God to do anything for him unless he does it for himself. It wasn't until he went to sleep, stopped striving so much, stopped trying to disprove the existence of a God he no longer believed in, that this God spoke to him. And Jacob realizes what I think we all must come to grips with. God was really here the whole time, even though I stopped believing it was possible. God was there in the ache that I felt from not believing in God anymore. God, not someone else's name or idea of God, but really God was here even in my doubt, and I was not aware of it. Anyone who knows me well will tell you that I am the last person that wants to be your religious answer man. There may have been a time in my life where that's what I would have loved to be, but not anymore. I'm not here to convince you to get rid of whatever doubts you may have or keep believing in God or remain Christian or any of that because most days I'm just doing well enough convincing myself. Because I think whether you listen to me or not, you'd still feel the ache of living in our disenchanted world. My hope for us, not just for the next month, but for the rest of our lives, is that we would lean into the disenchantment in the hopes of finding new ways of enchanting our world. My hope is that we, we all get to the perplexity stage of faith, but that we don't live in it forever. Especially we don't idolize it and worship our own skepticism. Over the next four weeks, you're going to hear from four different people in our community about how they are learning and unlearning and relearning to see the world as an enchanted place. They're going to talk about ritual and liturgy. They're going to talk about the innate spirituality that we all have within us but forget. They're going to talk about the charismatic spirituality that many of us often try to squelch or get uncomfortable with. About the contemplative faith that we have to work to reclaim. None of these are silver bullets for the problem of the ache, for our perplexity with God. But they are attempts for us to live into some answers to our deepest questions. And I'm hopeful, despite my tendency towards skepticism, that this series can be an exciting, surprising new way of reimagining our faith journey. As I was preparing for this teaching, I was reminded of an exchange between the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke and a young aspiring writer who had exchanged some letters with him asking questions. And in one of Rilke's responses, he writes this as advice to this young poet who's got all kinds of angst. He says, Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. The point is to live everything. 
Live the questions now, and perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. I cannot tell you what your faith ought to look like at the end of this five-week study. I can't tell you what my faith or your faith should look like in the next five years, but I can tell you that I am doubling down on a re-enchanted faith, even if that faith is a doubter's doubt. Because even for the laundry list of reasons that I could come up with for leaving this faith, it won't let go of me. My re-enchantment is about marveling at the complexity of our society and our universe. My re-enchantment is about refusing to turn the keys of the kingdom of God over to those who want to disenchant it of its mystery with certainty about those who are in and those who are out, about who to vote for and how to believe. My re-enchantment is about staying Christian because, at least for me, I need to be an ally for all of my Jewish, gay, atheist, marginalized, and religiously apathetic friends who I can't abandon. My re-enchantment is about willfully, defiantly staying in this mess because I'm still holding out belief that the best way to live is the way of self-denial service of others, a Christ who is crucified. Because there is still part of me that believes that unicorns are real and that God is here even if we didn't know it or believe it. Pray with me. Holy Spirit of wisdom and understanding, help us not be seduced by simple lies or repelled by complex truths. Instead, teach us to seek out understanding as if it were a hidden treasure, digging deep beneath the surface of appearances to discover what is the real in the depths. Give us the humility to learn from our community as well as the courage to graciously disagree with others in our community, seeking truth at all times. Do not let us be satisfied to see what is viewable only from our own limited perspective. Grant us insatiable curiosity to see what our neighbors can see from their different vantage points. Help us draw near to them to see through their eyes, hear through their ears, feel through their experiences, so that the horizons will be broadened through empathy. Grant us the faith to believe in our unbelief and the awareness to know 
when you are present, despite our many biases and our tendency to lose focus. Amen. So, we come to this time that we have each week together. And I've got a history with this table. At one point in my life, this table was enchanted. The bread and the juice were kept in this secret fridge. And once as a child, I broke in to try it because it was not something I could take part in. I wanted to know what it tasted like. And I remember being caught. And even as a child, realizing that curiosity about this meal was not something that was allowed. This meal was for the people who knew the answers, who had gone through the correct rituals to arrive at the place where they could appropriately consume these elements. And so, for a long time, this meal became a disenchanted thing. It became a list of arguments about whether or not it was just a symbol or if it was really real blood in a real body that we ate. It became a theory and an argument. And for a while, I didn't know what we were doing when we gathered around this table. But over the last few years there's been something that's happened gradually within me without trying, without noticing that, that this meal is truly an enchanted moment in our gathering. Whether or not you know exactly what this wine is or what this bread is, whether it's just some kind of pointer to some abstract truth or really somehow magically becomes the body and blood of Jesus, This is a moment where you are invited to participate in an enchanted reality that is so unlike the disenchanted reality that we live in. We we invite everyone to this table, whether you've gone through certain hoops or not, (laughs) if you just want to know what it tastes like, you're welcome to come. So we invite you now to this table to perhaps awaken within you, with your tongue, with your stomach, with your senses, a reality that is enchanted, whether you know it or not. We have gluten-free bread and we have grape juice if you don't want wine, but we invite you to come and taste this meal with us today.